0: This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start Talkin' Mule Deer. Hey, it's Jody Stemmler. We're here talking mule deer in Laramie, Wyoming today.
1: Hi, and I'm Steve Belinda, and, and joining us today is Professor Matt Kaufman and Greg Nickerson from the Wyoming Migration
0: Initiative. Welcome, folks.
2: Thank
1: Good you
0: morning. for having us. Thank you for joining us. This is exciting to be up here with you guys. It's a, it's a little chilly in uh, Laramie today, but it's a beautiful day. Thank you for, uh, for welcoming us into the Berry Institute, which is where you guys do most of your work, right?
3: Yeah. Um well, we do part of our work here. Our offices are actually in the, uh, over in the Biological Sciences Building, okay. which was built about 50 years ago. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't think this building was here when I did my grad work. Um, it's pretty new. It's, uh, it was I had to actually pull it up on the map to, to find it. So yep. Nice digs, though. Um, so this beautiful book sitting in front of me. I know you guys have been busy the last four or five days launching this new atlas. Um, Tell us what what
0: it's all about. What did you do?
3: Yeah, so, um, yep, the atlas just came out uh, in, in about mid-October, and uh, it's uh, the result of uh, six years of work. Um, we kind of uh, had this idea to put an atlas together when we started recognizing that uh, there was a lot of interest in migration, especially in, in Wyoming, and uh, and at the same time, a lot of new research coming on with uh, GPS collars and the sort of detailed movement paths, and and really the the, the public is just so interested in migrations, and uh, I had the idea of creating Wild Migrations, uh, the Atlas, when I saw the Atlas of Yellowstone, mm-hmm. which uh, is the first atlas of a national park, and when I, when that came out, they actually wanted to do some migration pages in that atlas, but but it d- didn't make it in the final cut. But that kind of gave me the idea of, like, the public is so interested in this, and, you know, what better way to show migrations than with maps, right? Yeah.
0: Well, the public's... Interested in it somewhat as a result of, of what you all have been doing through the Wyoming mi- Migration Initiative. So tell us a little bit more. First of all, l- let me back up a little bit. You are part of the Cooperative Research Unit here um, at the University of Wyoming. And, and I, I want to bring that up because it's um, this is a lot of the science in a lot of the states for wildlife uh, management, wildlife ecology, are through Cooperative Research, u- research Units. So, so tell me about that a little bit and then how you started working on um, the science of migration, initi- migration before you even got to Migration Initiative and the public interest in it.
3: Yeah, so um, I wear a couple of different hats, right? Um, you know, my, my job is, um, is through the U.S. Geological Survey. So I'm an employee of the USGS, and, uh, and I direct something called the Wyoming Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit, which is one of 34 or 35 co-op units around the U.S. and the co-op units are always embedded in a university and they're basically um, this solution to have universities to sort of harness the the power of the universities to do wildlife science but do that in a way that they can sort of work hand in hand with the state wildlife managers and and federal and, wildlife, federal, yeah. and federal as well yep. but the but every like our co-op unit The cooperators are the USGS, the University of Wyoming, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, uh, and then the Wildlife Management Institute. And one of the things that's unique about the Wyoming unit is um, Wyoming is a small state and the Wyoming Game and Fish is a small unit and they don't have their own research capacity. So uh, for, yeah, over over 30 years, the, the Wyoming co-op unit has sort of served as the research branch of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department.
0: So you will have undergrad or graduate students, and you'll help to kind of direct some of the science working with the agencies on what they need. Um, and then some of your graduate students and some of your own researchers will do the science. Is that the way it works?
3: Yeah, so essentially um, the, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department basically comes up, uh, you know, so they, they sort of pull their biologists in the various regions and the and the management needs and the research ideas flow up from those offices, and then we sit down with them and and, and kind of have a discussion about well how can we um, you know is this is this a man you know can we do research can we can we design a study that can address this management need or you know provide sort of a
1: practical application of the need that we're seeing out in the field
3: right right um, and it's and you know those those projects are all driven by the management questions, the information needs that the state wildlife managers have. And then, yeah, then we, you know, we uh, get together, figure, design a study that can address that question, recruit a graduate student to work on the project. All, all of our, almost all of our projects have graduate students and graduate student training is a big part of our mission. Um, and then we do the work. And and it's a, it's a really great model um, because that, f- especially for the students, because they kind of have you know, they have their committee here at the university and that sort of academic support. But then in the field, uh, in, in many cases, and these are the best projects, they also have like a field mentor from like a Wyoming we- mm-hmm. Game and Fish Department manager who in- introduces them to the community, um, introduces them to the sportsmen, to the other, uh, the, you know, the other land managers, and is really kind of, you know, they, they have sort of an uh, a liaison in the community and also, that relationship, it's really beneficial for the students because they, they start to learn, you know, what, what wildlife managers have to consider in, in managing,
0: yeah, you know, absolutely. our wildlife. Well, and that's, it's a great, um, I, I mean, it, it's obviously, it's great because you're solving science needs. Um, you're, you're meeting needs of, of real-time wildlife issues that the states are dealing with states and in some cases federal agencies and others but then the students the benefits that they get and the opportunity i mean it seems like a great way to groom people who are going to be our future wildlife managers in in what you know the traditions of our wildlife management and understanding the big picture and how their science fits into a whole bigger landscape and not just what you know Counting deer turds, as we used yeah. to say back right. in the, <laughs> my yeah. undergraduate work.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, knowing a little bit about the unit and knowing some of the previous leaders and, and um, some of the folks who set it up, I think the only drawback is you got to sort of be slave to being a federal employee and working with all these other entities, and and man, that probably gets complicated and frustrating.
3: Um, well, it's. I mean, it's actually. Uh, I think one of the, one of the unique. Aspects of the co-op unit program is that we we kind of uh, we kind of get to uh, operate a little bit independently from at least from the bu- more the bureaucratic dimensions of mm-hmm. the federal government because we're here and we're in, you know every co-op unit is embedded in a university right. and the USGS pays our salaries all of the project funding and hiring, all that happens through the university. Okay. And so those uh, university processes tend to be more streamlined and a little more flexible than the federal government. And so that, uh, and then of course, you know, the the co-op unit scientists, wherever they might be around the, around the U.S. and their students, you know, are embedded in those universities. And so that's just a, a rich place to do research and, um, yeah, so it's a really successful program, and, and um, Jody, you kind of hit it on the head. The, the, and this isn't unique to the Wyoming unit. All co-op unit students, essentially, while they're doing research, work with managers, and it could be this, and often, often it is the state wildlife managers, but sometimes, it's the Bureau of Land Management, it's the U.S. Forest mm-hmm. Service, Park Service, uh, Fish and Fish Wildlife and Service, right. and, and so that just. That perspective, you know, when they they come out at the end, um, not not only have they worked with those managers to sort of shape what the, you know, what the research questions should be or additional research uh, components that really address questions that the managements have or sort of put the information at a scale that the managers can use to, you know, actually make decisions, Um, but then also when they come out, they're familiar with those agencies and how they operate and what... You know what their mission is, and um, that's stuff that uh, we can't really teach right. here at the right. university.
2: One more thing I would add to what you're saying, Matt, is that the this sort of cooperative arrangement between the university and Game and Fish also benefits from a lot of private uh, groups that are supporting nonprofits, that are supporting wildlife research projects as well. So you, it's just a, a lot of collaborations, and I think that makes a lot of the research stronger and more applicable and, and not just kind of ivory tower stuff that isn't going to no. be yeah. Yeah, usable on the ground.
0: Science for science sake doesn't <laughs> get us very far. Right. We all, all of us who've worked in this world for a long time recognize that that science needs to 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 be inform the future decisions and that then, and you have to understand the complexity of all of those things that are working to affect our wildlife, uh, decisions that are made for wildlife. So, so I'm assuming, and I, now, it,
1: no. Let's hear a little bit about Greg. Greg, you're a Wyoming born and bred, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I am. I grew up in Sheridan County, <coughs> in the little town of Bighorn. And Beautiful um, Bighorn. Uh, it's kind of funny. I, I was able to get involved here with all this research work um, on ungulates because I'm a, actually a historian, not a uh, a biologist. But uh, I bring a lot of interest and background in the, kind of the history and archaeology of, cool. of wildlife in Wyoming. And uh, I'm also... Uh, passionate uh, sportsman as well. I grew up elk hunting. Uh, did a little tiny bit of mule deer guiding up in the Grovant Mountains mm-hmm. near Jackson. Um, so, anyway, it was just a way to combine my my interest in history and writing and filmmaking with this this wildlife research, which I think is so exciting and and um, just uh, you know setting. It's kind of the cutting edge of, of ungulate research yeah. uh, as far as migration.
0: Well, so. Taking the concept of okay, now we have a a management issue. The game and fish is identified or not. How did you start working on migrations, ungulate migration issues through the CRU? Because this has been going on long before the Wyoming migration initiative Mm. itself was developed, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, we we kind of just stumbled into it. Um, You know, nowadays when you do when you do research on big game species, you use GPS collars. You know, it used to be you, you'd use radio collars, which you have to triangulate to find <laughs> maybe yeah. you've, <laughs> maybe, doot yeah, doot. exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so with GPS collars, you know, you, you get locations every couple hours for three to four years. Um, and that has just become the, 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 the industry standard for any type of study. So when I got to Wyoming, my first study was a, was a wolf elk Interaction study up near when Cody. When was that? Just to me. Yeah, that was in 2006. Okay. Yep. And so you know, wolves had been uh, restored, reintroduced to Yellowstone, and were starting to spill out of the park into um, you know into the forest and the pr- and the sort of working lands around Cody. And the que- and the question was how you know how are elk responding to the n- new risk of predation that wolves present? And so that was you know that's what that study was about. But we used GPS collars on the on the elk, and you know when we got those collars back, we we documented for the first time their migrations from winter range near Cody up into summer range in Yellowstone National Park. Hmm. And then there, in that case, there was also this interesting question that the that's a partially migratory herd, which means you have resident and migratory animals right. existing on the same winter range. And it was a really interesting um, that the residents were going gangbusters. Um, calf-cow ratios <laughs> in the mid-30s, whereas the migrants were, were suffering hmm. l- really low recruitment down into the low teens. Um, and so then there became, you know, migration is supposed to be beneficial, and right. it usually is, but in that case, the sort of roles were reser- reversed. And so trying to sort of sort out like what's going on with w- this migration up into Yellowstone um, you know, is that related to this low recruitment? And it t- and it turns out that the migrants um, were basically suffering low pregnancy rates from drought. And also Yellowstone National Park is where we keep our wolves and, right. and grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. And so um, they were also suffering higher rates of predation on their, on their calves as, you know, as a function of the fact that they migrate into the park, but the residents stayed in the foothills where there weren't very many predators. In fact, predators were sort of highly managed right. in those areas. Probably As also
0: not losing energy because they're not moving, so they they maybe.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that, and I, I, I tell that sort of example because that's really sort of, for, for me, that's really kind of how it happened. You know, then we did a study of moose in uh, 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 east of Jackson Lake and um, and then working with, with Hall on some of the mule deer questions in, in Pinedale. And all of those studies used GPS collars and the data would come back and And we would get, you know, these maps of their migrations. And then sort of like the next step was like, okay, well, why are they doing this? What are the things that influence their migrations? Um, And so that's just sort of led to like all of these these different questions that are more directly focused on the migrations themselves.
2: And one thing I would add to that is that all the, you know, migration work that happens at the co-op unit, is built and informed on these generations of game and fish biologists who understood the migration dynamics, but the paper map biologists. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, you know, in order to understand where animals were moving, they would have to do things like go out after it had snowed, rake out an elk trail, count how many elk came through the next day, cover it back up the next day, and, you know, it would yeah. be, it'd be a hard thing to figure out. The so good old were,
0: days of wildlife science. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of... of I uh, love those old maps, you know, <laughs> drawn yeah. in
1: crayon and, right. you know, got the old notations, but uh, yeah. it was...
2: Um, a lot of miles um, on foot, and then they mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to gather a lot of information. Right. So well, this new technology makes it a lot easier.
0: And then the intermediate was those, those radio callers you were talking about where right. you'd get a ping, you know, you'd get those locations every few days or something. So you have, you, it was just A to B. You had that line. Yep. You had no idea what happened between those couple of points where you, you got them on a map. Um, mm-hmm. so it's just kind of the evolution of the science.
3: Yeah. And we, and that's a good, it's a good, uh, segue into a, a page pair from the book. Actually, we have this, uh, in the, hist- uh, in the migration research section, we have three maps from three different time periods. Um, the first one, uh, this is elk migrating the same elk that I was just talking about elk yep. migrating, um, up the North Fork and South Fork of the Shoshone winter near Cody and then migrating up those ranges into Yellowstone National Park and that was um, first studied by uh, the Craigheads by by John Craighead in the let's see like 60s and 70s with neck bands and so Mm -hmm. we have a map of sort of what you learn from a neck band study and they had they had they trapped hundreds of animals on their winter range then they had to go and uh, hike around on horseback and foot in Yellowstone National Park to find the colored neck bands. Then uh, the next phase is is Bill Rudd, who's actually the co-founder of the Wyoming Migration Initiative, did his master's work on the same elk. Now studying them with radio collars, so now you can triangulate and find the individuals. But it, but you know, you get. A couple locations a week, probably. This
0: is page 58 and 59 <laughs> the, right. w- yeah. the Wild Migrations yeah. Atlas. This yep. is really cool because I actually am seeing exactly what I was just talking about yep. about a dot on a map here, a dot on a map, and all you can do is draw a straight line, you know, and lead it to. That's really yep. interesting to see that history.
3: Yeah, and then of course the final map is a you know is a, is, is it one of my first co-op unit students, Arthur Middleton, who was a PhD student at the Wyoming Co-op Unit, and you know now 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 he's net gunning elk so you get this wide distribution across the whole winter range and every elk has a GPS collar collecting locations every couple uh, hours for two to three years and yeah you can see in the atlas just like the, the big difference the, the maps are so much more detailed and so much more informative now
1: so do you remember the moment when the aha moment when you said you know what we got to do something specifically on this issue and create the initiative
3: you know when I, I don't entirely remember the aha moment, but uh, I did, uh, I did take inspiration from the work of, uh, of Emmeline Auslin and Joe Reese, who, as, as, as you know, Steve, uh, sort of told the story of the path of the prime right. horn. And I, I remember, um, watching a presentation of Emmeline after she had hiked that route and she sort of had Joe's photos and she was talking about, um, what she saw on that route. And, it, and, and that was just kind of an aha of like, you know, we do, we do all this research. We do, you know, these complicated statistical analyses and bring in remote sensing and all this other stuff. But, you know, here Emmeline is just telling this simple story right. mm-hmm. of how the animals move along and what she saw and what they experience. And, and, and also, I think <laughs> in that moment, I was like, this is so much more compelling. (laughs) This is so much more interesting to the general public than, you know, sort of like these scientific papers. Well, and that's,
0: uh, you know, interestingly, this is kind of a segue to to me Mm -hmm. personally. I have a background, an undergraduate degree in wildlife science, Mm -hmm. and I always knew I didn't want to be a scientist. I mean, I I got the science, I understood it, but the, the core part is taking that science and making it interesting making it understandable about why we're doing this so people can tie it into what's what what they're doing in their daily lives or it's just something cool and wow this still happens in our in in america it's great
1: so having worked i was working in pinedale when a lot of this stuff with path of the pronghorn was being learned and hall's original maps Mm -hmm. without the evolution of where they're at now i remember the first one i saw and i was like wow this is awesome um we were constantly just bringing the postdoctoral approach to the energy companies, to the folks, the decision makers. And uh, in the after hours, when we would sit around mm-hmm. and talk about it and, you know, imbibe in some adult beverages. You we, don't do that. We really no. just started saying, you know, go, well, what's the story here? And I, the Path of the Pronghorn was, was launched, mm-hmm. informally picked up by the folks who, you know, WCS, the, the Wildlife Conservation Society Uh, Joel Berger, uh, Emmeline, Joe Rick was was doing his photographing Mm -hmm. National Geographic Society and they made it a story. And that story moved individuals to do conservation, moved the Forest Service to protect that path Mm -hmm. and really raise the awareness of these long distance migrations in that part of the world beyond the people that would normally care about it, which was your researchers, your wildlife biologists and your managers out there. To the point that when you mentioned Path of the Pronghorn now, almost everyone that knows mm-hmm. a little bit about migrations knows what you're talking about.
3: Right. Yeah, and that was that was kind of that storytelling was on our mind, but also on my mind and, and I think Hall's too, um Hall's of course a, a co author on the book. It's talking about uh, Hall Sawyer, who's yep. a
1: biologist with Western ecosystems technology. Yep. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh as as you know steve that path of the pronghorn is only traversed by you know about 3 or 400 animals yeah, right i don't even think it's that many in yeah, the last couple <laughs> winters so. and and so we kind of had this knowledge of like okay well, and 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 also that that migration corridor is a little bit unique for pronghorn in in, in terms of how um, the high elevation and the, the high yeah, fidelity yeah. and and they're going up and over the the grevants most of our pronghorn are you know out in the big sagebrush basins right. And they wander a lot more mm-hmm. than those pronghorn do. And so there was this one migration story of a somewhat anomalous small yeah. herd of pronghorn. And that's the migration story that most people knew about. And so now with the Atlas, that is one of about 70 different stories well, from dozens of migrations all around the state. So that was kind of the goal of like, well, we need to tell this broader story um, because there's, you know there's a bunch of other herds, nearly a million animals in Wyoming that are you know, that are migrating. And And
2: the other thing was we hadn't researched any mule deer yet, so we had to get that going. Because they're the champion of all migrators as far as having spectacular distances they're covering and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when Hall was doing his work, they stopped at the anticline. Right. And I remember talking to him saying, well, okay, how do we know that these animals are doing, they're stopping there? Well, that's where the winter range was. And then when he put the control on the Wind River front animals and started saying, Oh wait a minute here! <laughs> They're moving a lot further because it, it. And I've asked this question, Matt. You've heard me ask it in mm-hmm. many forums. Why do animals walk through perfectly good winter range where you have animals already wintering to get to somewhere 100 miles south?
3: Yeah, uh-uh. well, I I think we kind of know the answer to that now, at least in in part. You know, I think. So, yeah, you you're you're referencing um, sort of like the the Wind River Front, and that is an area where. Uh, So this is the foothills of the winds near Pinedale. And it's unique in that that's winter range for some mule deer. Mm -hmm. But there are are other mule deer that on their fall migration out of the Hoback come down, they walk through that winter range, and then they keep going another 60 or 70 miles down to the Red Desert. And what I think the answer to that little puzzle is that those animals that... uh, the animals basically they learn their mig- their migrations, right. right? And so those animals learn to go all the way down the Red Desert for whatever reasons, whenever they did, and probably could you know could have been centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but they learn that, and the way they're sort of where mule deer are sort of programmed is once you learn that migration, that's what you do. And so doesn't really matter yeah. that you know other animals are doing different things. You've got you've got what you the you're strategy. Pre-wired you're in your head. Yeah, and it's what you learned from right. your mom, yep. right? And yeah. so like. Um, even though you're moving through, you know, perfectly good winter range. Um, and we have other animals that do it the opposite way. They move through, I mean, you know, the Hoback, Steve, like that's some of the best summer range for yeah. mule deer on the planet. And yet we have animals that move, f- blow through that, you know, and, and, and go to some other place.
1: So we're, we're, we've got the Atlas now. We have been tracking animals that move from one spot to another tell us a little bit about this stopover f- phenomenon that we're learning about using the Brownian bridge technology and, you know, how that can possibly help us understand how s- at least mule deer move through some of these landscapes.
3: Yeah. So this, the stopover stuff was uh kind of a really neat discovery. You know um, that was uh that was originally worked at Hall. Sawyer did in his PhD and, and, Basically, you know, it starts with the observation that we think of migration as animals moving along this corridor and moving pretty rapidly. But then when you start to look at the data, you see that the points pile up in these places. And even 95% of their time for mule they're deer, not, they're not moving during migration. They're stopped feeding. And so we developed ways to identify those stopovers with, you know, with the Brownian Bridge analysis. And, and now we have come to realize that, especially in the spring migration, but, but also in the fall, when mule deer are migrating and they, and they stick around in those stopover areas, they're really feeding. So in the spring, that's when the best food is. They stop over and feed in those areas. In the fall, I think they're, they're trying to get those last bits of forage before they pile in with everybody else on the winter range where there's not much food. And um, Well, they run the risk of getting
1: dumped on with some of our... You know uh, Wyoming snowfalls that yep. we can get too. Yeah, so.
3: yeah, exactly. And and so and the 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 bottom line for that is that I think we we now understand that migration we we used it is movement and we used to sort of focus on that, but now I think we better recognize that it's really about feeding. And
0: you refer this, to that as surfing the green wave. I've seen that. Yeah, before. great. Did, did you come up with that? <laughs> that? Is that a communication <laughs> yeah. guy thing?
2: That, that was all the scientists. I didn't, oh. do, I didn't do that at all. But, yeah, the, I- the idea is that um, in the springtime, the green up moves up in elevation. So when you're down in the basin, that's where you see yeah. the first green grass. And as the snow melts up higher, then um, it gets green, you know, maybe in June or July up at high elevation. So the animals are following that green wave of vegetation up in elevation to get access to the forage when it's at the peak of nutritional quality. And that's really important because that's how they get enough energy to uh, nurse their offspring, uh, grow antlers, and piling up, pile up enough fat on their backs that they can survive through the next winter.
3: So.
1: Yeah, and didn't I see something that the, the predators, there was a study that, that showed the cats following the, the deer on a winter range in the west that as they were surfing... The green wave, the cats were sort of surfing the crest behind it, following their food up. And so if you think about it, it makes sense. Animals go, predators go where, where the food's at. And uh, to actually try to now understand the intimacy that how they're using the protein content, the availability of fresh forage, is is got to open up a lot of avenues for managers, uh, both wildlife managers and land managers, on how to better take care of uh, the habitat and the animals out there.
3: Yeah, so now, yeah, the, the stopovers have been, um, have become kind of a focal, uh, you know, f- focal habitat areas. So, for example, I mean, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, their habitat division, and BLM as well. I mean, they now um, when they look for to do habitat enhancements, they look, you know, like, is, is, there, is there a stopover in this area? And, you know, because obviously enhancing habitat in those stopovers where the mule deer are going to come back to feed every year yeah. is, you know, a better place to, gr- you know, get better food.
1: So we know animals are moving. We know where they're moving now. Can we now focus on what's threatening those? And, and have you got into work on specific corridors, on the threats to those? And then ultimately, what are the solutions to maintaining viable and functional migratory corridors?
3: Yeah, so um, I know there's a, there's a whole, uh, whole chapter in the book on threats. And, uh, and that, was really, um, that was really one of the main reasons uh, that we created the Atlas, right? Um, we, we recognized, like, as we were, as we were starting to discover and document in detail these migration routes, um, others, you know, we, we know, that, you know that there are migration routes that have been uh, identified in other parts of, of the West as well, and we're sort of, like, slowly the maps are coming online, And at the same time, we recognize that we are, you know, we're we're putting up fences and roads and punching holes in these landscapes. And almost all of those things make these migrations more difficult. And but without the maps, you can't you know, some some of those problems are have solutions like overpasses or modifying fences to make them more wildlife friendly or directionally drilling around, around migration corridors to limit surface disturbance where those animals move through and feed, you know, those solutions exist, but they can't be implemented unless you have the detailed map of the, of the corridor. And so that was really kind of a a primary reason for, uh, for creating the Atlas, um, was sort of like, you know, make better maps so that we could do better planning and better conservation. And, uh, and we are and you know, and the threats you know that's been kind of an active area of of research um you know of course, s- several study, you know quite a few studies looking at road mortality, you know we know fences are kind of a pernicious um barrier on the landscape that's kind of semi permeable they can move through but occasionally get caught up, also restricts their movement and their ability to sort of move freely to adapt to snow and green up and all these other things um Subdivisions are, you know, increased disturbance. um, Oil and gas disrupts migrations. Solar and and wind as well. Yeah, increasingly, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got lots of wind coming into Wyoming.
1: I think putting more people on on this country and on the planet probably does a lot, too, because we need more energy, we need more food, we need more space, we need more recreational places Mm -hmm. and everything else. Is there a threat that hunters are going to take this map and say, ah, okay, I'm going to go sit and, uh," you know, because hunters traditionally have known where some of these Mm -hmm. are. You know, there's the famous one on the Green River for pronghorn. There's the famous ones up around Cody for the big bucks and big bulls migrating out of Yellowstone down onto the National Forest. Are are we opening up a can of worms here to a consumptive users that could have an impact on some of these herds? So, uh,
2: you know, hunters have known about, a lot of these corridors for a long time, and not just you know, for the past hundred years, but probably for the last you know, five thousand years. So places. going back, yeah, a pre-European, yeah, yeah. pre-settlement. Um, and so uh, we have these great maps now. They show things. A lot of times, it's showing hunters and outfitters things that they already knew. Um, the game and fish managers. Now that they understand the timing of these things so well with the GPS data, a lot of the hunting seasons are set so that you won't be hunting the herd uh, right during the middle of their migration when they're the most vulnerable. Um, So that happens. Then there's the feedback loop, right? If hunters are suddenly super successful, which is, I mean, hypothetically say they were able to kill a lot more mule deer one year, then there's the feedback into the management system of, oh, we'll have less, you know, uh, less hunting licenses the next year or whatever so and then speaking from experience I've been hunting in in a in an area where there's a migratory herd uh, near Matizzi for for Mm -hmm. elk I've been hunting there for uh, more than 20 years and um, we always knew that elk were migrating through there now there's really good data precisely the trails they're using and stuff and the thing is, you still have to connect with that animal <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> and they're they're experts at avoiding us. They always have been. Even if we know where their trails are, it still could take, you know, many many days um, to find the the specific animal in that specific migration spot. Um, you know, game and fish managers do uh, worry that people will just camp out right in some of these really tight bottleneck areas, and that's I think that's uh you know it, it's a it's a mild concern um it's uh the you know the idea is that 100 elk are coming through and right. and uh you you know
1: well hopefully your atlas if, if folks take the time to read mm-hmm. about it and get to understand this stuff will prevent a, some of that yeah it's right. a
2: matter of hunting yeah. ethics yeah. you know um uh to not not stop them in a spot where they have no other option you know right um and i don't know there's just a lot of time. A lot of animals migrate at night. That's another thing mm-hmm. that happens. Um so even if you knew exactly where it was, you're probably going to They're going to be in a different place yeah. tomorrow morning. You're going to have your head <laughs> on the bedroll <laughs>
1: when they're Or
3: next through. next year. I mean, sometimes there's a month differential right? in when true. they migrate one year versus the yeah. next depending so on how much snows falling in yeah. the mountains it's or It's
2: not it's never hunting's never going to be like going to the supermarket, so. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Right now I can get online and see some of these cameras on some of the underpasses. And we also, you guys for the last few years have been doing live updates on social media on specific deer. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, I, let, let's break it back. The communications is, is something. So tell me, tell us generally just how that got started and oh, how, yeah. you know, let's just talk about the communications effort because that has been unique um, with what y'all have done.
3: Yeah, um, I think uh, we've, you know one of the things when we knew when we started and and the, one of the reasons to start the migration atlas is like people are just fundamentally interested and fascinated by migrations and um and it's sort of uh it's non-denominational right <laughs> i mean it's like the i mean state wildlife managers federal wildlife managers i uh western governors association it has a you know a, their corridor uh, program uh, these the oil and gas, uh, you know, like the, the the Jonah and the Pinedale anticline, you know, those mitigation funds are directed towards uh, conserving ungulate migration, and and uh, lots of the land trusts are focused, and um, it's just it's just something that uh, you know these animals are kind of they make some of the same journeys that we make, right, when we go up into the hills to hunt or camp or fish or whatever. And so I think it's just, the public is just sort of fascinated about it. And so when we started, like, the Wyoming Migration Initiative in 2012, and then the atlas was sort of our signature effort out of that, we, you know, one of the foci of the Wyoming Migration Initiative was to better communicate the science, the migration science, uh, to the to the public primarily, but also to, you know, to translate it where needed for managers mm-hmm. and decision makers and policymakers, um, not relying, you know, not not forcing them to go to the the original literature to sort of understand where mm-hmm. the corridors are and what what threats they face.
2: And so, th- yeah, there's a lot of different tools that you can use to do that. Matt was. Uh, Uh, did a lot of live tweeting of some of the mule deer captures Mm -hmm. where they're placing GPS collars. Um, Social media has obviously been huge for the Wyoming migration initiative because we can directly uh, reach out to those super broad audiences of uh, hunting groups and just interested people. I love it because it's not
1: political news coming from my friends. It's more (laughs) stuff that fills my news feed, the stuff I'm, you know, super interested in.
2: Yeah. So um, one of the innovations that Matt figured out was, um, if you if you pick out a specific animal you can um tweet or post on facebook where it is during its migration and then for the public that's just a great story that they can grab onto because that they can think about visualizing one animal making this big long journey and so every couple of days they're like oh where where is that deer now and so they're, they 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 get used to this idea of a, the animal as a character. They put themselves in the animal's shoes and really learn to empathize with these really long journeys, 150 mile journeys. Some of these mule deer are are, are taking. So that's which been really successful. Which is
0: awesome until one dies um, by you know for whatever natural causes, predation. Uh, you know, so so you guys have dealt with that because you had Jet, right?
3: Right. Yeah. And you know, we we knew they're gonna die, right? We know. Right. So
0: that's
2: that's the fate of a prey animal. It yeah just, it's it's going to happen yeah. right
3: and we and we knew with with jet um that she would eventually die, and you know she might she might be killed by a hunter, she might be poached, she might die on a fence, she might get hit on a road um, or she might die from winter starvation, like yep. many of our mule deer do when wi- in harsh winters and it turns out that that's that was her fate and so um you know we just we kind of used that moment uh to talk about the challenges of getting through the winter for our mule deer herds and um you know there was when she died um we we did we we had already she'd already finished her fall migration and we don't really tell her story during winter so she died in late December and but for the spring you know we we let it sit for a couple months and and then we and then we you know sort of put the story together and it was just sort of about what animals face during winter and the costs of raising a fawn and um the negative energy balance that they're in during winter when there's nothing to eat and they're pushing through snow and uh yeah it was 100 percent positive you know everybody was just Mm -hmm. like there was a lot of uh you know sort of rest in peace jet and uh and then then after that there were a few voices coming back on saying okay you know we're sad that jet's gone, but when he's doing next? the next <laughs> one Who's <laughs> next and that was Mo
0: right <laughs> so
2: part of the idea is that you know we can tell the story of this individual that dies, but the larger herd goes on mm-hmm. and it, it always has for you know count need Richard Attenborough Attenbow- <laughs> voice <laughs> when you do that right you know. yeah, yeah, but but that's the w- cycle of, of these things and and uh, yeah, people were ready for the next animal, and so we had we had Mo and we tracked her from uh almost at interstate 80 in southern wyoming up 150 miles into the grovant and then uh there was another deer do we want to get right into that so yeah she's the record yeah? holder now right? right so um that same spring we we had the 150 mile migration record was broken by this particular deer named 255 and she had originally been collared in 2016 in the summer and migrated all the way to Idaho. And so Matt and the biologists thought, well, maybe this is just a dispersal, this is a one-time deal. And but, so they were gonna keep an eye on her, except her, her GPS collar malfunctioned that summer and they completely lost track of her and thought, oh, we're ne- we had this yeah. 240 mile, 250 mile migrator and we have no idea where she is. Well, two years later, um, we were doing more captures in the Rock Springs area, and uh, which is the winter range, the where winter we originally range. caught her, yeah. Um, so 250 miles south of where we lost her, and um, there were a bunch of deer out there with collars that had malfunctioned, and the helicopter pilot had it. Uh, David Rivers with Native Range Capture Services, he had a, a, a direction from Matt to pick up any any deer that had a collar on it where he wasn't hearing any signal, and so. He picked up one of these animals and brought it back to the capture crew, and the serial number matched the same deer that we'd lost in 2016. So she had clearly migrated all the way back from Island Park, Idaho, through Yellowstone, Grand Teton National Park, the Hoback Range, the whole length of the Wind River Range, and back to the Winter Range. And and so there she was, and we said, all right, we're going to get it right this time. We <laughs> put on a new <laughs> collar. Right. And she repeated that same migration. Wow. And so we uh, were we amazing. were able to w- bring the public along and show how she migrated not only 150 miles back north to the Hoback, but then continued a h- another 90 miles uh, north into Idaho through these these uh amazing areas and she did what you were saying before where she bypassed a lot of good <laughs> summer range oh but no the thing is that's uh, uh,
1: that's one of my favorite places in the world and yeah. I'll tell you what man there's that's such a game-rich environment and yeah great habitat it's you know it's sort of like when we hunt elk what's over the next ridge what's <laughs> over the next ridge <laughs> yeah. we we're just keep going so.
2: and so probably for her she was probably born in Idaho and her mother yeah. showed us showed her the migration down to the red desert and now she's she was pregnant this year and yeah. we tried Matt you you saw saw her
3: we tried to catch up with her on some range and see if she had a fawn but we were unsuccessful oh. yeah <laughs> well so so yeah.
1: this research goes beyond just telling a story it almost becomes entertainment for folks where they're spending time free time following what 255 is doing you know the history of of Mo and Jet picking up the Atlas in I think that's great because the more we get people to understand this stuff, the better chance we have a chance of making some better conservation decisions and ensuring this. And I, you know, looking at all the old maps and the, and when colleagues of ours would come to presentations and they go, "Well, here's all the migrations we know we lost," and I'd be like, "Well, God, what do we have left if we know if we're really good at documenting the decline? Can we document our conservation efforts to save?" protect and conserve and maybe even restore some of the uh, migratory pathways that are out there. And I know I just was flipping through the book, Matt, and, you know, you see I-80, which is the Mm -hmm. big ribbon of uh, concrete that goes through the southern part of the state, how those animals stack up there. And I hear there's efforts underway to maybe try to address some of that here in the near future, and I think think that's awesome. If we could get those animals back to doing what they used to do, we've got a better chance of uh, keeping those populations... in better condition and better numbers so
3: yeah absolutely i mean that's i think i think one of the things um that the atlas kind of one of the messages is is sort of the power of maps and one ways in which the the maps are powerful is they catalyze conservation Mm -hmm. and so we have a whole section the the last section uh the last chapter in the atlas is about conservation and so uh, it looks at some, many of the successful efforts that have occurred in Wyoming that have made these migrations easier and made them more protected. And so they look at, uh, you know, road-crossing structures, uh, wildlife-friendly fencing, um, new efforts to uh, conserve... The uh, big
1: one I'm playing down there, yeah. Yeah, conserve that that
3: the the Fremont Lake bottleneck, that, that big purchase to conserve and open up that bottleneck, remove the fences. Um, there's also efforts to... Uh, increasingly identify you know a lot of these corridors in Wyoming rely on big private ranches Mm -hmm. which are doing a great job of keeping this landscape open and permeable and allowing these these animals to migrate on them but of course some of those ranches are at risk of subdivision and so now that we have better maps we can the land trusts are working to sort of identify those big ranches that some of our corridors depend on completely and uh you know and of course, you can put conservation easements on yeah. those if you've got a willing um a willing rancher landowner and uh that's a great that's a great solution to keep those landscapes open so so the whole the, the that last chapter sort of walks through all the different um conservation efforts and I think it's really it's hopeful you know we can well uh, we're seeing
1: policy now yeah, right related to this stuff yep. there's been directions from the state the Wyoming game fish Commission adopted you know migration corridors into their uh, uh, crucial habitat or critical habitat yeah. uh, matrix that they use. And now we've actually seen some direction from the Secretary of Interior to basically tell his agencies, work with the states on this stuff and make sure that you conserve these special features in the landscape. And God, I would have loved that 15 years ago in, in Pinedale, Wyoming. it would have We could have done so much more than we were able to get done there. But I think it's it's telling and it shows the importance of the work you're doing. How you're influencing wildlife management and how you're going to influence, you know, not just Wyoming, but other states. Because I know when I go to other states, people are talking about, well, we think we got deer that go further than Matt's deer over there, so we're going <laughs> to go put
3: collars. They probably on do and prove <laughs> us <laughs> wrong, well, and, <laughs> and Matt,
0: you and uh, Jim Heffelfinger and some others have been taking some of this science out to other biologists in other states um, through a series of workshops, where you're you're helping them understand some of the things that you've done, uh, answering their questions, so that the technology or the concepts can be applied in other. Pa- it, places in other states right
3: yeah yeah exactly i mean wyoming is kind of for one reason or another may, may, maybe in part because we have so much oil and gas development which is also funded a lot of these Absolutely. studies you know we've kind of been ground zero for for migration mapping and research and management on the state side and uh other western states have a little more time to you know map their migrations different and threats yeah right yeah. different threats but um land uses aren't changing as as rapidly um and so yeah, as the, as the sort of migra- the migration story has been has growing out of Wyoming, other, other Western states have been sort of interested in learning from what Wyoming has been doing. And that was the genesis of the migration workshops, um, which the Mule Deer Foundation helped fund yep. as well. Yep. Um, and through Jim's leadership with, the, with WAFWA's Mule Deer Working Group, um, that was kind of the perfect nexus um, to interface with all the other mule deer managers across the state and we kind of developed this workshop um, where it it where we could sort of take the show on the road and it it was sort of half migration science and management and then also uh, the other half was uh, well there's some policy bits but also um, training um, wildlife managers who have that GPS data how to analyze and, and come up with these yeah, and, and you've put a
1: couple hundred folks through that—biologists and, and other managers through that, correct?
3: Yeah, we've uh, we have interacted with every with all eleven western states. Um, we had trainings start. We've done four trainings. One uh, last October was in Oregon, and that was Oregon, California, Washington, and then June, August, and September of this year, we did uh, Nevada, which was Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, which was Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico. And then the last one was um, Bozeman, yeah. Bozeman with Montana and Idaho.
2: And, and that kind of work is so important because even if you've been collaring animals for a long time, if you haven't, you, you'll end up with millions of GPS points. And so you, you need to do some analysis to be able to, to get useful data about where's the high-use corridor. Because conservation dollars are limited sure. a- across yeah. the whole region. So if you're going to do a conservation <coughs> easement, do one in a spot that's going to benefit uh, a migration or habitat treatment, the same, or, or put in an overpass. You don't want to spend ten million dollars on an overpass if it's not in the spot that animals yeah. are likely mm-hmm. to use it. So well this the, data uh, helps all of that. I- in,
1: <clears throat> in the in the conservation world, you're starting to see things become more mainstream like this. There's now an extension in ArcGIS that you can uh, produce movement corridor maps mm-hmm. and home ranges without the intrinsic data. Now that da- that it's not going to be as accurate is what you guys are all doing but that shows me that there's more of a need for it folks want to know what's going on they want to be able to make better decisions um and you know we we at the Mule Deer Foundation have been working on a migration initiative that we just received a grant for from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and so we're going to be stepping up from more of how can we get more money to the ground Mm -hmm. how can we get what you all do and what you've been doing to more people when they need it And, you know, being a nonprofit, we can venture into that policy world and we can get more in depth in some of the policy discussions and political discussions, to be honest with you, that, you know, may not be suited for a state or a university Mm -hmm. or a researcher to get into. But we we're going to be getting into that realm and and we'll be talking more about that over the next few months and, and be launching that in early 2019 but it, you know, we want to say is we're trying to support what y'all are doing. We're trying to get more information to the people on the ground, whether it be a private landowner, a biologist, uh, you know, a researcher, so that they can make a better decision um, to maintain these these corridors and be a better steward of the land. Well, so and
3: and I think that was that was one of the aspects of the migration workshops, which was which was really re- rewarding. You know, every I think as we as we went around the West, you know a- almost all of the western states are i mean they all have you know these big game herds are important to every western state, right you know the tags from these these herds basically you know a- in addition to the fishing tags you know fund those state agencies. most of these big game herds migrate uh, or need to one way or another freely l- use these western landscapes. The science shows that Migration is really important uh, that 's sort of the key to abundance and productivity uh, of our big game herds, and we now have the ability to map those migration corridors, and we also have the ability to make them make those journeys easier and 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 protect those corridors um, you know modify fences look, work with the road crossings and so that that was really kind of uh rewarding for, 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 I think, everybody from our team to just see how much consensus there is in the importance of these big game herds, the importance of migration, and the importance of conservation. And I think kind of the West is sort of on board yeah. with that idea.
2: And that's really exciting. It's, ki- it's almost like 100 years ago when uh, lots of national forests and national parks were made that, that really helped all this conservation of these herds happen. And we're seeing another consensus like that uh, happening now around migration. So that's, that's, well, telling the story
1: is really important. And, um, I don't know if it's still up at Ben Cody, the museum, but Arthur Middleton's display on on all of this stuff, reaching all those people that are going into the native American and and the firearms museum, seeing all Mm -hmm. that, the social media, the, the Atlas. Um, so what's next for you guys, Matt, is it just now going out and, uh, getting more people aware is there's still more work to be done on the research side are you looking at you know um pushing the atlas out to all your major um retailers i know you've been on the road and you're you're going back on the road very soon so what's next for you guys
2: well uh as far as the atlas we have a an event in cody wyoming coming up on the 15th and one in sheridan on the 16th of November. You know, our tour has been sort of focused in Wyoming because that's the key audience that we try and reach with this information. But we think the Atlas has a, uh, its kind of gives the recipe for Mm -hmm. migration science. And and, uh, so we definitely want to pursue as big of an audience for it as we can. Um, It's, you know, available for sale right now. Uh, It's easy to get through the Oregon State University Press website. Um, that's our publisher that we worked with. Um, What's the price on it, Greg? It's $50. Um, so Oregon State University Press, Wild Migrations. If you just put that into your search engine, you'll you'll be able to find it. Or, you, of course, you can always come to www.migrationinitiative.org, and we can... Um, get you hooked up with a copy and
0: i want to emphasize that this is a stunning book i mean it is a it is a coffee table book with beautiful photography and artwork in there um wonderful storytelling as well as these incredible maps Mm -hmm. and this very interesting science-based history-based um you know and conservation focused messaging so it is it is um it's a a stunning piece of work and it, it is well worth you might and go 50 bucks but this book oh, is it is a life worth time. so much more. it is worth yeah. a ton more just the information that's in it and it is beautiful it is it is a great piece of work that you guys have done so i
1: love the there. dedication can i read it matt absolutely to all the people past and present who care about the wildlife and wild places of wyoming and i think you know that sums it up well i mean the fact that you got annie Pruel, the writer mm-hmm. you know ghost stories of wyoming um to 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 get involved in this the fact that you're out there you know got something that I think is going to be on you know it's not going to go to the bookshelf it's going to stay on the desk for a while in my in my household and probably end up on my wife's mm-hmm. uh, environmental science uh, classes so
2: yeah if you're uh, if you're a person who loves maps or wildlife I mean, the maps in here are just beautiful they're all produced by our partners at uh, University of Oregon infographics lab and they produce uh, just gorgeous maps, and they're going to r- really um, enable people to see the landscape and see these animals' stories in, in ways that that they hadn't before.
3: And and it's accessible. I mean, that was our that was our goal, was to bring migration science to the public. Oh yeah, this is and not this is not yeah.
0: wonk science, wonk policy, wonk no. anything. This is very understandable, logical. I mean, it's it's it. it it is there's a lot of information yeah. but it is a lot of good easy to understand it, it just all comes together yeah. in this book
3: if you can if you can get through the hunting regulations mm. of most <laughs> of our western <laughs> states almost about the same yeah, amount of pages yeah no, you okay. can breeze through the <laughs> <Yeah>. wild migrations <laughs> atlas so research is going to continue yeah so our so what what we you know we're continuing to do migration research on on that front the um the the next big push, or rea- really a continuation of, of work we've been doing, is we really need to get a better, a more fine honed sense of this influence of development. We we the the smoking gun is we don't know where the tipping point is, and because we don't know where that tipping point is, that makes it really hard for us to advise meaning the man
0: it, when, like when oh. it gets too dense that sh- they're not going to move through there anymore. Right. That's what you mean right. by the yeah, tipping speci- point. Yeah.
3: Especially especially with oil and gas development. Um, you know, yeah. Wyoming is helping uh, the u.s you know become a- energy independent and a lot of that is you know coming on the backs of our mule deer and and so you know we know that those animals can tolerate some development but we need to sort of understand where that tipping point is so that we don't go past it and that is a hard question from a research perspective but that's one that we're really focused on in the coming years the the next focus is just to continue the mapping there's still lots of herds in Wyoming and uh, that w- in some cases where we have the data but we haven't done the, m- the analyses to, to produce the maps and then of course we're also um, increasingly helping other western states uh, develop mapping programs um, for big game herds in their own state and so that's that's an additional focus as well and then the migration initiative you know we'll, we will continue to tell these yeah. stories
0: okay so um, again, if you're interested in getting the book, The Atlas, um, or learning more about the Wyoming Migration Initiative, or getting on to their social media and trying it. Or
1: donating or to them. Or donating, yeah.
0: yep, absolutely. Um, migrationinitiative.org, correct? Um, the other thing is for anybody who's interested is if you are a young person interested in wildlife science, opunits.org org is that correct why co-op units.org nope oh, co no. opunitsorg has uh, information about the cooperative research yep. units as well um, and they'll have a, a link as well to, to Matt's page um, so that uh, because if you're interested in this if this stuff makes you excited um, co-op units might be the way for you to get your do your science get your degree and 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 help wildlife conservation moving forward. Great. Absolutely.
1: Well gentlemen thank you so much for your time Thank you. Bob. We really appreciate what you do, and we look forward to working with y'all. And hopefully, we'll be back, uh, do another episode in a year or two, and get us updated.
0: Absolutely, sounds great. Until that time, thank you guys. Uh, this is Jody Stemler,
1: and I'm Steve Belinda from the University of Wyoming in the greatest square in the Union, Powder River, Letter sure. Buck.
0: <laughs> Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters and access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.